When I was in college getting my undergrad degree, my major was communication, double major really, communication and history with a minor in religion. And uh, over the years in ministry, it's been amazing that I have probably used the lessons I learned in my communication degree more than the lessons I learned in my religion class. Because trying to understand people and trying to learn to communicate to people is a difficult task. It's made even harder by our digital age today. You throw in emails and instant messages and text, and it becomes difficult to communicate. I think probably for the first 10 years of my marriage, my wife's favorite go-to line in any type of discussion we got into was, you're a communication major, and yet you can't communicate worth the stink. I mean, it was, it was every, every time we had a discussion, look at you, communication major that doesn't know how to communicate. Uh, to be honest, I don't, in my interpersonal relationships, communicate real well. I, I'm not good at communicating in a one-on-one situation or circumstance. I don't chit-chat. I don't do small talk. I, uh, that's just not part of who I am. And so I like silence. And being an introvert, there are several guys that I fish with, and uh, one of the guys is just like me, and we can drive an hour and a half to go fish and never say two words, and we're great. But then our other friend, he wants to talk the whole time. And if we're not talking, he's uncomfortable. And so it's so strange to try to communicate in that dynamic and how we communicate and why we can communicate. I'm one of those that I want to solve the problem. I don't want to talk about the problem. And I don't want to talk about what we're going to do about the problem. I want to take care of the problem. And, And so sometimes that is difficult in an interpersonal relationship. But my communication professor always had this phrase that when he would say it, all the time, then I thought it was just some kind of linguistic gobbledygook. Just, you know, one of those phrases that professors use to make them sound smart that doesn't make any sense. But over the years, I've come to appreciate that it is not only wise, but it has taught me so many lessons. And the phrase that he would use repeatedly in every class, after every speech, after every debate, after every discussion was, meanings are in people, not words. I know when you hear that, you think that doesn't make sense. But he would say after every discussion, we'd give a speech and we'd sit down. He'd say, now I want you to remember that meanings are in people. Meanings are in people. He was trying to communicate to us and constantly remind us that if we are not clear in the way we communicate, clear in the things that we communicate, then our hearers get to define the words we use for us. And what you may think you're saying in a word may be heard differently from the person you're speaking to. You would always say, make sure that you're communicating clearly, not what you think you're saying, but what you want them to hear. I find that so true in everyday life. I find it so true in everything that we do. What we think a word means, or how we define a word, is not necessarily through what the world defines that word. We bring all kinds of preconceptions and past experiences and past history to how we define that word. When I'm communicating, I have to make sure I understand what I'm saying the people understand. That's not going to be on the final, but it is going to be part of what my message relates to. And I want you to keep that in the back of your head. If you're struggling with that, let me give you a couple of examples of your everyday life, how, how meanings are in people, not in words. Let's say you walk in on your spouse, or you walk in on a coworker or a fellow student, or, or a friend, and they look visibly upset, maybe even they are in tears. And you ask them, are you okay? 
And they respond with, I'm fine. What does I'm fine mean to you? What I'm fine means to you is not what's important. What I'm fine means to them is how it's defined. If you hear I'm fine, don't worry about it. And so you say, great, I'm glad you're fine. Let me tell you a joke. And you begin to go, that's not how they are defining fine, correct? They are thinking I'm fine, leave me alone. But those same two words mean something differently in different circumstances. Let me give you one that's probably a little closer to home. You're out with your spouse and you say, where do you want to go eat? And they say, I don't care. Now what you hear is, I don't care, so we can go anywhere. That's not what they said. And you'll find that out when you pull into some place and they say, I don't want this. And if you're smart, you won't say, but you said you didn't care. I don't care is two different meanings depending on the circumstance and the situation. Let's take it another step further. Let's say you say, I'm in the mood to go eat at Chili's. And your spouse or your friend says, sure. You get there, you start eating. They look like they're not happy eating. They're not enjoying the meal. And you say, what's wrong? I really didn't want Chili's. But you said, sure. What does sure mean? You want to confuse somebody when they send something to you or when they say something to you, especially online or texting, say sure. You ever gotten a sure and you're like, now is that sure or sure? There's no way to tell because meanings are in people. And the reason I bring that up this morning is because it's the first Sunday of Advent as we celebrate what it means to have hope. We lit the hope candle and Charles and Margaret read a reading on hope and we brought in the banner for hope and we're talking about hope. But yet if I was to ask you to define what hope means, I'd probably get at least a hundred different definitions because hope is one of those vague and ambiguous terms. And we're also this morning looking at the last verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 21 from our series Living Sacrifices, the last message from that series. And in verse 21, Paul says this, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if I asked you to define what evil means to you, we'd probably get just as many different definitions of evil as we did for hope. Why? Because meanings are in people. Those two terms, hope and evil, when you properly define them, when you properly understand them, most of us would think that they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. But they're really not. Hope and evil are interdependent. They depend on one another. Matter of fact, they are always in conflict with one another. If there was no evil in the world, there would be no need for hope. And yet hope is the only thing that can overcome evil. So how do you define those? How do you say what is hope and what is evil? If, if hope is the only answer for evil in the world, then how do we describe it? Well, that's what Paul is getting at in verse 21 of Romans chapter 12. What he is trying to say to us is that responding evil to evil will never work. The only way to overcome evil is with hope. And that's the message of Advent. Overcoming evil happens with hope. It's the foundation of what the whole story of Christmas is. That hope has come. And you and I, if, if people didn't determine what meanings were, I could end the sermon right there because that's basically the message of Romans 12, 21. Hope has come. You can't overcome evil with more evil. More evil only produces evil. The only way evil can ever be stopped, the only way evil can ever be overcome is through hope. So what does hope mean? What does evil mean? 
That's the key for us to understand this morning. I went back and looked at the last 35 years of political party campaigns and looked at their political campaign catchphrases. And you know, almost every catchphrase that I found had some idea of hope in it. Because politicians know that hope is a vague and ambiguous term. Because meanings are in people. So they pay somebody a whole lot of money, some communication guru that knows that meaning are in people, and and he throws out a term that doesn't mean anything generally, but means something specifically to each person. Let me me just read you some of these. From the last 35 years, and I'm not going to mention the politicians, they're all presidential candidates, and you decide what you think these terms mean. It's morning in America again. We are a light on a hill. A man from hope. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Man, that ruined a Fleetwood Mac song for me back in 1992. (laughs) Compassionate conservatism. Hope and change. Make America great again. Now, all of those are great themes. All of those are themes that got people excited. But if you were to ask 200 people what those themes mean, you would get 200 different answers. And the politicians know it because they can stand up and promise something that they will never deliver because they haven't promised anything specific. And so we come across this idea of hope and and there's an idea in the world of where is our hope and what is our hope. Well, Webster's defines hope as this, a feeling of expectation or a desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is a feeling of trust. The synonym of hope is desire, wishful thinking, aims, goals, and expectations. Now, if you were to go to a Bible dictionary and look up hope, it's defined this way. Assurances of things hoped for and convictions of things not seen. Let me read that to you again. Assurances of things hoped for and convictions of things not seen. You might recognize that because it's exactly the same definition given in Hebrews chapter 11.1 to describe Faith, because hope and faith are interchangeable. Hope is a manifestation of faith. Hope is an overflow of faith. Hope is what comes out of a faithful heart. And for those who are Christians this morning, we can clearly define hope. Hope is when we place all of our expectations on certain things to happen, on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The Bible tells us that Jesus alone is our hope. And when you and I place our hope on anything or anyone else besides Jesus Christ, we walk down a path that leads to trouble. It's the reason so many Christians don't experience power in their life is because we place our hope or our faith or our trust in something besides Jesus Christ, a politician or a political party or our job or our job title or our bank account or our standing in the community or our reputation. And we build all of those things up and we let those things begin to define us. And those things that define us show where our hope is. If you want to know what your hope is in, how do you define yourself? Someone asks you to describe yourself, what would you use? For the Christian, hope can only be found in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Covenant is pointing, leaning towards the hope that was to come in the Messiah. And that hope was found in Jesus Christ when he came into the world. John the Baptist, who many people will be preaching on today, is a preparation of hope and preparation of the birth of Jesus Christ. If you go and read John the Baptist's message, it was basically trying to help the world that he was coming into, helping them understand how hopeless they were. John the Baptist's message was repent. 
Recognize that you have no hope. The world does is it tries to convince us that we can place our hope in all of these other things and it will be enough. But if you have any experience in life, you can testify that a hope placed on anything besides Jesus Christ will always leave you disappointed. You can try it. Jesus says, go and try it. See how miserable your life will be. Because there is an emptiness inside of us that can only be filled with a hope that is Jesus Christ. And when you place anything else in that empty hole to try to fill it, whether it's a relationship or a person or a job or a thing, it's only going to dissolve. And it will leave you less better off than you were in the first place. Celebration of Advent is the arrival of hope for a lost world. The arrival of Jesus Christ. And what that means is we now have hope. In a, in a hopeless world, there is hope. And we have got to be about the business of sharing that hope. Now let's go back to our passage. What does hope have to do with evil? Well, what does Paul say? More evil will never get rid of evil. The only thing that gets rid of evil is hope. Good. The ultimate good. Webster's defines evil as this. A profoundly immoral or malevolent, depraved, and morally reprehensible act or person. And that sounds big, and it sounds bad, but we learned last week that moral relativism tells us today that what was evil yesterday can be acceptable today. And it's easy to rationalize evil. Just go read the history of what happened in Nazi Germany or under communist Stalinism. And they murdered millions. It happened in the 60s and 70s in Asia. They rationalized evil, saying it wasn't evil in these certain circumstances. But the Bible defines evil not subjectively, but objectively. The Bible defines evil as the result and consequences of sin. Evil is always the consequences of the sins is in the world. It's sin in and of itself. Evil is identified as anything that misses the mark of God's standard. Anything that falls short of God's standard. And please hear me. In the Bible, there is no distinction between big evil and little evil. It's all evil. When a husband or a wife decides to walk out on their spouse and their family and cheat on them, it's evil. When you lie or cheat to get ahead in your business, it's evil. When someone picks up a gun and walks into a church and shoots everyone they see, or at a rock concert or a music festival, that's evil. Now the consequences may be larger and the, the, the overflow is larger in how it expands and touches other people's lives, but evil is evil is evil. And we have experienced with evil since the Garden of Eden, when sin introduced itself into the world through Eve and Adam's choice. Evil came into this earth and every civilization, every person known to man has experienced evil. You, you want to see evil? Look in the mirror. All of us have a hint of evil within us. It's sin. I mean, you don't have to, to go real far to understand how evil our culture is. Turn on the news. Read something online. I mean, this this weekend, I was scanning through something and I came across a website. I don't know how I got there. You ever start clicking and all of a sudden you're somewhere way down a rabbit trail, but it was a website. It was nothing but a compilation of home security videos of people stealing Christmas decorations off of other people's porch. I mean, these were people that were, and they were not 
you know, they'd look like nice people. They would pull up in a nice car and they would get out and they would look around and they would go and there was this one, I mean, these were like six foot nutcrackers that was on the side of this guy's porch and this lady's carrying them over her shoulder out to her car. And I thought, what's more evil than stealing Christmas decorations, right? I mean, we live in a fallen and evil world and you don't have to search for it to try to find it. The problem today is instead of understanding that evil exists, we want to excuse it and we want to find out a reason for it. That's why every time there's an act of evil, you hear people say, well, why did they do it? Had to have a reason. Maybe they had a bad childhood. Maybe they went crazy. Maybe they were going through a divorce. We want, to, we want to try to rationalize it. We want to try to excuse it. Because if we can figure out why they acted evil, then we can look at our own lives and say, well, maybe I can get rid of that part of evil in me. No, they were evil because evil exists. And until Jesus returns again, you and I will be confronted with evil. We live in an evil world. The old covenant tried to contain evil. That's what the Ten Commandments, that's what the moral law was about. They said, listen, we can contain evil by containing behavior. If, if we tell people this is the way that you should live, uh, honor your father and your mother, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you go down and you try to follow these, then surely we can contain people's behavior and evil will be overcome. But the problem with evil is it's not a behavior, it's a heart issue. And behavior doesn't change the heart. And so you can obey all of the Ten Commandments and you can obey all the 630 moral laws that the Pharisees had written by the time of Jesus and still have evil in your heart. And so God had an ultimate plan that He would send Himself in the form of a human in the person of Jesus Christ to come to overcome evil. See, the only thing that was going to overcome evil was not behavior change. It was heart change. And so when Jesus came into this earth as a child and then gave himself on the cross, in that act, he overcame evil. And because evil can be overcome, there is hope today. Because evil can be overcome in my life. Because he gives me a heart change. He takes that old evil heart that was corrupted with, with evil thoughts and evil desires. And the Bible says he died to the control and the pressure and the power of those sins. And he got rid of that heart and he gave me a new heart. And even though evil still exists in, in some of the flesh and I have to battle against it all the time, I now have hope that evil is not going to win. That's the definition of a hopeless society. When we get to the place that we have think that evil is, is going to win, we're hopeless. You can't legislate hope. You can't legislate bad behavior. That's why we keep saying if we, if we do this and we do that, then maybe there won't be any more evil acts. And listen, I'm all for common sense. But you could take away every weapon known to man and evil will find a weapon to commit evil against mankind. Whether it's a rock or whether it's drowning them or whatever they come up with. Why? Because in our heart, a lost man is evil. But us this morning, you and I, those that have given our life to Jesus Christ, we have a new hope. John three seventeen, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. John says this, Jesus, For I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll know trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
The hope that we have this morning is not that evil is constrained or that evil is, is held back. The hope that we have this morning is that evil can be overcome. You understand, you don't have to give in to sin this morning. You don't have to give in to those evil thoughts because Christ in you overcomes it. Paul says it great when he's beginning to close out this very same book, the same Letter that he writes to Rome in Romans 15, 13. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What Paul is warning us is that not only do we overcome evil, we now become vessels of hope. To a hopeless world, we are hope. We shout the only hope there is, is Jesus Christ. And when the Holy Spirit controls us, is what he's talking about, we allow people to see that there is a hope. We're a walking example. Now understand, we, we still live in that tension because when Jesus came the first time, he overcame evil, but he didn't get rid of it. Still here. But he is going to come back again. And when he comes back again, he is going to eliminate all evil. So we have to live in the tension where we represent that there is hope today to overcome all evil that you and I face. And we will face evil. You will face evil things, evil people, and evil times. But the Bible says through Christ we can overcome it. But we also live with an anticipation hope that there is coming a day when evil will no longer exist. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8. He's explaining it. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's talking about when Jesus comes back. For the creation waits in eager expectation of the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who objected it. But in hope that the creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage and decay and brought into the glorious freedom of children of God. He's talking about the earth, the world. He goes on and says, We know that the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have been part of the first fruit of the Spirit, those of us who are Christians, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemptions of our bodies. He's saying, listen, it's hard because we live surrounded by hopelessness and surrounded by evil. But our hope is in Jesus Christ, not just that he allows me to overcome sin, but one day he's coming back and sin will be thoroughly defeated and evil will be subjected. That's why you and I have a hope that overcomes. There is a day coming when all evil will be eliminated. It will be wiped out. Sin will be removed. But until that day, we have got to represent hope to a hopeless world. We've got to be vessels so that they might see there is a hope. But the problem for most Christians is we place our hope in so many other things that people never get to see our hope in Christ. And it's not big steps. Most of us in this room would not say, well, my hope is in my job or my hope is in my marriage or my hope is in my children or my hope is in my job title because we don't think of it that way. But when everything turns bad, when everything goes wrong, where do you turn to? Where, what rock do you look to stand on to gain strength? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a relationship. And, and time after time, we place our little hope and our little trust in those things. 
If I'd only win the lottery, if I could only get a date, if I could only get this job promotion, if I can only get past this next project, then everything's going to be okay. And we don't recognize that in saying those things and in doing those things, we are taking the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and slowly taking it from Him and placing it on those things. And each of those little steps, before we know it, all of a sudden end up way over here. And then when the world begins to crumble, because those things will never fulfill the need you have for hope that Jesus does. And when those things begin to crumble, you know what happens? We get mad at God. God, it's your fault. And God said, you didn't hope in me. You hoped in that job. You hoped in that bank account. You hoped in that relationship. That's why people don't give their life to Christ in the first place. So many people don't recognize how hopeless they really are. And that's what John was saying. You can't really search for hope until you recognize how hopeless you really are. Because so many people today, your friends and your family that aren't Christians, maybe even in this room, you are placing your hope in you. You think that maybe if you're good enough, maybe if you do enough stuff, maybe if, if you run out the clock by trying to pile up more good deeds than bad deeds, that somehow God's going to let you into heaven. Maybe the Bible isn't all true. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe that preacher was just trying to be conservative in his preaching. You can hope. But I'll tell you, that hope will always end up bankrupt. Spiritually, emotionally, physically bankrupt. The Bible is very clear that the only hope for mankind is Jesus Christ. And the only way some people will ever see it is to watch you live it out. Paul's trying to remind us again what he did at the very first, that when we allow the Holy Spirit to control every area of our life, it is evident to those around us where our hope lies. Some of you just haven't got hopeless enough. Some of you just haven't got broken enough to place your total faith, your total hope in Jesus Christ. What does that look like lived out? What does it mean to live with your total hope in in God and in Christ? It means making your way to the Red Sea even before the waters start parting. It means starting to build the boat, even though you've never seen rain. It means getting out your calendar and making a schedule for tomorrow, even while you sit in the belly of a whale. It means going and standing out on a dusty road to wait for a chariot before any dust has come up, showing anyone coming near, because God said, go and stand there. Hope that overcomes the world is the hope that is totally dependent on Jesus Christ. So let me ask you just simply this morning, where is your hope? Because real hope, when it's lived out, when it's walked out, it's contagious. You ever been around somebody that had hope? Somebody that was positive? Somebody that was always looking to to God, to trust God, and, and, and even in the midst of disappointment, even in the midst of disease and disaster, they still clung to hope? You walk out of being with somebody like that, it's contagious. The world may seem black, but they bring light into the room. That's the hope that is in Christ. That's how you and I are supposed to live. You can't contain it. It will always spread. It will always overcome. That's the word Paul uses. Not just sin, but evil. Let me close with my favorite Old Testament story that most people have never heard. You know I love history and I love the historical narratives. Most people, when you read through the Bible, when you get to Kings and Chronicles, you just kind of drag. Because it's history. It's, it's history of the kingdoms. 
And most people have heard the name Hezekiah, but you don't know the story behind Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a great biblical name. That used to be the, the name I would go to when somebody would say, what verse is that? i say, it's Hezekiah 4.6. Because Hezekiah sounds like a book of the Bible, doesn't it? Bible drill. Turn to Hezekiah. And everybody, okay, I, got, I know where that is, right? Because we know the name, but we may not know the story. Hezekiah was the last godly king before the exile, before the end of the Jewish kingdoms. And he was the king in the, the southern kingdom, the king, kingdom of Judah. And that was the smaller kingdom centered around Jerusalem. And when Hezekiah was young, the northern kingdom that was known as Israel ceased to exist. The Assyrians destroyed it and wiped out all of those tribes. And so all that was left when Hezekiah came on the scene was a small area around Jerusalem and several tribes that had clung to Judah. Because you remember back when Solomon, after David's sin, God said, your kingdom will never be big again. From the time of Solomon on, the kingdom split. And there were good kings and there were bad kings. And Hezekiah's dad was a horrible king. Matter of fact, he was one of the worst. Ahaz was his name. And he was one of the most ungodly kings that there was. He locked up the temple. He refused to allow them to worship in the temple. He outlawed Passover pilgrimages. They no longer could celebrate Passover. He raised up altars to false gods. He, he made alliances with kingdoms that were all around him that were evil kingdoms, evil alliances. And when Hezekiah became king, he began to overturn every one of his father's rules. Now you may recognize Hezekiah, the prophets Micah and Hosea and Isaiah were around when Hezekiah was king. Hezekiah is also mentioned in the genealogies of Jesus. If you read Matthew 1.10, Hezekiah's name is there. Why? Because he had trust in God. He honored God. And so when Hezekiah began to overturn all of his daddy's rules, he opened the temple and he let the Levites come back in and worship. He began to say, we're going to do Passover again. And he tore down all the false gods and all the false idols. He was king for 23 years and they prospered. But he was king of this little bitty kingdom right in between two huge empires. The Egyptian empire was to his south and the Assyrian empire was to his north. And here he was, just this little Jerusalem in the midst of those two empires. Now you may remember the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones who destroyed the northern kingdoms. If you read in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, it'll tell you the story of how they came in. The Assyrians were one of the strongest kingdoms. Eventually they took over all of Egypt. A few years after Hezekiah, the Assyrians are defeated by the Babylonians, who was Nebuchadnezzar. Then they were totally wiped out. And if you want to go a little further in history, just to give you a concept of when we're talking about, the Babylonians were wiped out by the Persians, Cyrus the Great, Darius, and Xerxes. And then the Persians were wiped out by the Macedonian army under Alexander the Great in 322. So that will be on the final exam, so make sure you mark that down. But the Macedonians were then defeated by the Romans. And so that gets us to the time of Jesus. But now back to Hezekiah, little bitty kingdom. They created these alliances with Egypt and with Assyria so they wouldn't come destroy them. Hezekiah says, I will have no alliance with evil. We will be holy and we will make no deals with evil nations. Well, that's a problem when you're a little bitty country. And so King Sennacherib, who was the king of the Assyrian Empire, said, Who does he think he is? Let's go take Jerusalem. I heard that in that temple there is gold and silver, and I want the gold and silver. So he brings an army of 200,000 men and surrounds Jerusalem. Well, Hezekiah begins to freak out. What do I do? He goes to some of his, his advisors and says, What do you say we do? And they said, Listen, we need to call Egypt. 
Because Egypt can send their armies and their horses and their chariots and they can come and save us. And he goes to other advisors and he says, what should we do? And they said, well, listen, Sennacherib says he won't destroy Jerusalem if we just give him all the temple gold. But that would be taking that which is holy and making it profane. That would be compromising. So he had a dilemma. So he goes to Isaiah. And you can read about it in Isaiah 37, 38. He goes to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, what do I do? And Isaiah asked him just a simple question. You can read the whole story. He says, who do you trust? Do you trust in horses and chariots in Egypt? Do you trust in making deals that compromise your values? Or do you trust God? Where is your hope? Now that's a water meets the wheel moment, right? That's the doctor comes in and says the big C word. That's when the bank account gets to zero. That's when the relationship seems at its end. That's when when everything is falling apart. That's when the darkness seems to be overwhelming. And that's when the question becomes the biggest. Who do you trust? It's easy to trust and hope on a sunshiny day when everything is paid and your health is perfect and all your relationships are good. But the question is, who do you hope in? Who do you trust when the armies are at the gate and the only options are compromise or alliance with evil? And Isaiah says, why don't you pray? In Isaiah 38, it has Hezekiah's prayer. He begins to pray out to God. Say, God, we got this evil king, and some people want to deal with Egypt, and some people want us to give up the temple gold. I don't know what to do. And then he comes to this point, Isaiah 37, 20. He says, oh, Lord, I'm going to ask you, deliver us from this person's hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. What did he say? He said, you can't compromise with evil. You can't rationalize evil. The only hope to overcome evil is God. And so Isaiah writes a note, and I love it. You can go read the story if you get bored and you like history. But Isaiah writes a note, and basically Isaiah's note says, Dear King Sennacherib, we're not coming out. You're not getting the gold. We're turning you over to a holy God. P.S. If I was you, I'd run. That's, what he, that's basically Rusty's translation of what he says. And chapter 38 tells us that night that Sennacherib got that letter, he went to sleep, and a plague struck the Assyrian army, and 185,000 men were killed that night. And Sennacherib woke up and looked at the letter and said, Isaiah has some pretty good advice. And he left. Didn't take Jerusalem, didn't take the gold. Why? Because Hezekiah said, I'm going to trust in you. You and you alone, God. And what's cool in history, you can go now over to, the, to some of the Egyptian museums and they have what's called the Sennacherib Prism. It's, it is the history of King Sennacherib in the Assyrian Empire. They found it. It's in cuneiform and you can read it. And he talks about surrounding Jerusalem. But he tells the story a little different. He said, we got to Jerusalem and I decided not to invade. So we left without anything. Meanings are in people, right? What's the moral of the story? Psalms 27 says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But I will trust in the name of the Lord. Again, I ask you, where is your hope this morning? Psalms 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people he chooses for his inheritance. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. And from his dwelling place he watches all who are on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do, is watching. 
No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is in vain hope for deliverance. And despite its all strength, it cannot save you. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him and those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. For we wait in hope for the Lord, for he is my shield, my help, my deliverer. In him my heart rejoices, for I alone trust in his holy name. And may your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Do you have hope this morning? Are you experiencing it? Good times and bad? The only thing that's going to overcome the evil that you face in life is Jesus Christ. Christ alone. That's hope. Let's pray.